the old corporate paradigm of extreme hours, little sleep, endless meetings, and nonstop travel is dead. No one wants to go back to that. It's bad for performance and for everyone's mental and physical health. The future of business is hybrid and requires a flexible new paradigm that helps everyone reach peak performance, the brain-friendly workplace. But there's more to this new workplace overriding old outdated paradigms than meets the eye. And Frederica Fabricius's new book, The Brain-Friendly Workplace, is full of ideas to help all of us adapt our workplace so our brains will work at their best. Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning Podcast, where we bridge the gap between theory and practice with strategies, tools, and ideas we can all use immediately applied to the most current brain research to heighten productivity in our schools, our sports environments, and modern workplaces. I'm Andrea Samadhi and launched this podcast to share how important an understanding of our brain is for our everyday life and results. My vision is to bring the experts to you, share their research books, ideas, and resources to help you to implement their proven strategies, whether you're a teacher working in the classroom or in the corporate environment. Be sure to listen to the episode prior to this one, number 257, as I do cover a deep dive to put all of us in the right mindset, or should I say brain set for this interview. I'm so excited for today's interview, episode number 258, as we have a returning guest from one of our very early episodes, number 27, Frederica Fabricius, and she's all the way from Germany, and she dove deep in our last episode into her book, The Leading Brain, Neuroscience Hacks to Work Smarter, Better, and Happier, when we first launched our podcast back in 2019. What was crazy about finding Frederica back then is that I actually found her from YouTube, from a presentation she did on leadership in the brain, and it really helped me to understand the chemicals involved in the brain during peak performance and what it looks like when the brain is involved in flow, which is something I think we all want to master. What Frederica might not know is that I watched her presentation many times over back in 2017, taking notes over my notes. And it helps me to understand why people perform the way they do at work, why some people excel and others seem to be missing something, and why certain people gravitate towards certain positions based on the chemicals predominantly in their brain. What became clear to me from this diagram from her presentation that you can watch, it's called Fun, Fear, and Focus, is that some positions in the workplace that are at the beginning of the curve are routine and they require people to do the same thing every day. And some people are wired this way, but for those who are not, they'll find themselves to be under-challenged and bored without a brain strategy in place. Similarly, positions that require new daily challenges are designed for those workers who enjoy constantly putting out fires and would be bored if their work was routine or the same way every day but these positions often lead to burnout without a brain strategy in place. We all need to find our optimal stress point so our work challenges us just the right amount, leading us to that place of optimal workplace happiness. 
I could see clearly with this example why I was very unhappy when I left my exciting job in field sales. I covered higher education and university campuses in the Southwest region, and then I moved to inside sales where I sat at a desk and was bored and under-challenged until I figured out that I needed to offset my desk time with exercise. This diagram that Frederica taught in her presentation also pops into my mind when I see someone working very hard or burning the candle at both ends. As Frederica cautioned that this type of work pattern isn't sustainable and can lead to depression, burnout, and even changing the brain to where people under these high levels of stress begin to see stress in places where there isn't any or they experience hyperarousal. I'm always looking for productivity tips that we can all use, and it's clear that stress in our workplace is at an all-time high globally. We know that two-thirds of people report being stressed at work to the point they can't sleep at night. So I was thrilled to see that Frederica's new book was focused on changing the workplace, not the employee, to create the best environment for happiness and productivity. Let's welcome back returning guest and my friend from episode 27, Frederica Fabricius, a neuroscientist, author, and public speaker who works with leaders to help them to understand how their brains work. And like I mentioned from that first presentation I saw with high-level business executives, she'll share how we can all find our optimal stress points with the secrets of her newly released book, The Brain-Friendly Workplace, that hit number three on the Wall Street Journal's best-selling books list and remains on this list today. And she'll show us how we can all adapt our workplaces for optimal productivity, health, and happiness. Welcome back, Frederica. It's so incredible to see you again. And congratulations on your new book, Hitting the Wall Street Journal's best-selling list. That's just awesome. Yeah, I was blown away myself. So, And it's great to see you again, Andrea. Thank you. Well, you know how thrilled I am for this interview. I really, I'm going to have a hard time just keeping my excitement in. Like I, I, I was just saying, and I wanted to capture it on recording, that I was searching for someone to help me to understand the brain back in like 2017 when I was pushed into this direction. And so I was thrilled to find a strong female leader to learn from. So thanks so much for being here for us. Yeah, and it's sometimes crazy when you think how few there are. Like when I hit the bestseller list, I was just, you know, I don't usually check those lists. I was like, oh, who's on here? There was only one other woman. It was Brené Brown. Um, and everything else, it's just like, I was really wondering. I had no idea that the business bestseller list was dominated by men. That was new to me. So that was a bit of an aha moment where I thought, okay, um, not so many women out here. but. Uh, Anyhow, so I think it's important um, and it's great. And I love that we've been in touch over all those years. Yeah, yeah, especially, uh, and, and we'll get into it with my questions, but how I found you. So I I really honor and value our friendship. Uh, it, it means a lot to me that you're there. And, you know, just this book, let, let me get into my first question because I, I kind of ask these long questions, so I, I'll set it up for you. But as I was reading your book, 
You know, you feel like you know someone. So I, I found you, I watched your first presentation to business executives over and over again. And I kept taking notes and trying to understand how to achieve peak performance, because this is important to me and the work that I do and the chemicals of the brain. And you feel like you know someone, you know, I'm watching you over and over again, studying you. And then I get to the part in your book where you say that you were happy to be fired. And I knew you came from the Max Planck Institute where all those Nobel Prize winners came from, but I had no idea why you left until I'm reading the second book. I'm thinking, I didn't know this about you. Your story gave me so much insight into my own neural signature, why I left the corporate world at the time. Can we start with why you were happy to be fired and why understanding our brain is the first step towards being happy at work? Yeah. So first of all, well, it wasn't the Max Planck where I was fired. Uh, it was um, uh, McKinsey. So at the Max Planck, I left to join McKinsey. Um, and the funny thing is, I think you probably haven't heard that story before because who wants to talk about their failures? Nobody does, including myself. So when I put that story in there, I felt like I want to put some of my personal failures in this book because that's what need, people need to hear. They need to hear how we fail and how we overcome it. If you just share this glossy picture of yourself where you're misperfect, that's not very relatable. And I think it doesn't help people as much as when you share your true self. So with this book, to me, it was really important to, you know, bring my whole self to this book. Uh, it was a more personal book than my first book. And so to answer your question, why was I fired and why was I happy about it? I can tell you, I was not happy when it happened. Right. So because, you know, otherwise life would be so easy. But in retrospect, this is like the best thing that happened to me ever because if I look at it and in the books I explain it it was an environment that works very well for people with high dopamine high testosterone neurosignatures so high stress competition way to the point you know a bit of a power play power game a lot of smart intelligent talented people so I'm not saying there's nothing bad about this but it was a fast-paced high stress environment and there was a certain communication style or a certain way we do things that did not quite fit with me. And so I always felt a bit like a fish out of water, like a stranger in that world. And it is because I have more of a dopamine estrogen neurosignature. And we can maybe talk about what that means in a second. And so what I need to thrive at work is a place, you know, where there's real trust and empathy between people, where I can care about people and have a focus on people and not on numbers necessarily, though it's good when you have both. Um, and so the funny thing was that they always told me that I can't communicate. And the funny thing is I've just written a Wall Street Journal bestseller. So tell me I can't communicate. It's just their way of communicating may be very different from how I communicate. I communicate with stories. I communicate with entertainment. I com communicate with humor. It's not just numbers, numbers, numbers. And I, I don't mean to talk badly about my previous employer. That's not the point here. What I was sharing is that people have different neurosignatures and different strengths. And sometimes certain workplaces just value one type of behavior. And these people could do things I could never do. So there was a lot of positive there, but it just wasn't me. 
And so what I'm saying is that in the workplace, we need to create a brain-friendly workplace where people with different neurosignatures can thrive. So people with high testosterone or high dopamine neurosignatures can do their thing and people with high estrogen or high serotonin neurosignatures can also do their things. And when they all come together, they're stronger and better than when you just have, let's say, one one type of neurosignature. That was so insightful to hear your story and to know that's how you skyrocketed to where you are because I was in the corporate space and and relating to what you were saying, you know, having these creative ideas going, let's put social emotional learning. It wasn't called that back then, but I was trying to put it into the curriculum we sold with Pearson, a wonderful company, but they were looking, everyone, the product creator department, they were all looking at me saying, I don't think the world's ready for this. And bam, social emotional learning took off in the schools years later. And I just uh, was before the time and my neural signature didn't match, but uh, you know, in order to make it match, you got to go out and do it on your own, which is why I launched the podcast. So, and which is why you wrote your books. You had these ideas that you knew were going to, it was a bit, a bit of your intuition as well with your neural signature. So it just brought so much understanding to, oh, well, that explains why that didn't work and why I needed to do this and would have been nice to have, you know, your whole presentation at the time going, it's okay, Andrea, here's the path, right? Instead of just sitting there going, oh, this sucks. Now I got to figure out what's, what's next kind of thing. Exactly. And I think you just said something very important, intuition, you know, people with high estrogen neurosignatures often get a hunch or have an intuition of a great idea that other people think is just complete craziness. I had a story like this in my book about myself, and it sounds like you had a similar experience. And it's the companies that are losing. Of course, we lose when we're stuck in an environment like this, but it's even worse for the companies because I remember back then, I always said, you know, I want to bring neuroscience in here. All the insights, everything I know about the brain, we could use that here for our clients. It didn't fit. They didn't see the value. And now 10 years, like, yeah, they thought I was crazy. Yeah. Right. I, I, I'm pretty sure I'm not. Yeah. So it's often where we have different ideas and we bring seemingly unrelated topics together and bridge that. We also have more connected brains. So we also have more connected ideas. And I think the world needs that. And so I'm not saying that one your signature is better than the other. What I'm saying is that we need all of them. And if we want all of them to thrive, we need to stay open-minded and have that respect for people who are different from ourselves. Absolutely. And so this is going to set me up for my next question here, right in line. And so your chapter one, you talk about the neuro gap. And we've just kind of been talking about it. But can I just share a story of something that I was just studying? And I thought, this is what... Frederica's book is about, I'm trying to make connections to the real world. So to, to bring it in. So I'm always learning and, and making connections. And so last week I took this fascinating course. It was called how to think like an FBI profiler. And this, <laughs> but it was so cool. I was like, why wouldn't I take this class? And um, the guy that they were featuring, they made a Netflix series, Mindhunter, about his cases. So if you take the course and then you watch the series, it's all about what he explained. So it was fascinating. And he, he was talking about this case where they bought in a female investigator and she wanted to go with her gut 
and blow up a note that they thought was the criminal and put it on a billboard. And she was just using her intuitive side and all the male dominated testosterone signatures were saying, no, that's not a good idea. But they went against what they were told and she did it and they caught the criminal and put him behind bars. So is this what you would call the neuro gap? So the over-representation of high dopamine, high testosterone brain systems um, that might've ignored this creative woman's thinking. Is that what you would say? Yeah, exactly. And I find your example so fascinating. And this course sounds really fun. Uh, So it's exactly this for this book. I received data from a company called NeuroColor. They measure personalities and and neurosignatures. And I had a hypothesis. I said, I would like to see whether the people at the top are different from the rest of us, whether they have high dopamine testosterone neurosignatures and whether there's a difference between men and women there. And so they, you know, created this anonymous data set for me. So just for my book. Um, And there was the NeuroGap. So it was very obvious that in leadership positions, there are more people with high dopamine, testosterone, neurosignatures compared to the rest of the population. And what this means, in my opinion, is that we get a certain type of people at the top who are different from the rest of us. And they often, you know, they're brilliant, but they create high stress environments, lots of competition, um, a certain tough-mindedness is dominant, a lot of change is going on, and that alienates other neurosignatures. So, and even when women get promoted or when women, you know, choose to go into those positions, very many of them are very similar to their male colleagues in their neurosignatures. So what I finally ended up saying in my book is your neurosignature is affected by gender, but not determined by it. So some men and women are very similar in their brain structures, but what we can say at the top, the men and women at the top are very similar and the people with different neurosignatures tend to drop out. And I think that's a loss. And so that was like my starting point. And then I wanted to understand what we can do to bring everyone back and to allow everyone to work at their best. I think many high testosterone, high dopamine uh, people are brilliant leaders. Like, I don't want them to leave. I just want a bit more balance. I think that would be good for everyone. And we also know, for example, like look at a hospital. If all the leaders have high dopamine, testosterone, your signatures, they're going to make it efficient. You know, economy, the numbers are going to match. They're going to process many patients per hour. Maybe they will experiment maybe with some new techniques but they may not stay at the bed of a patient and ask questions or care as much or give them a feeling of belonging and of being heard. And I think when you enter a hospital, it's a very unpleasant experience. Maybe you have cancer, maybe you're going through some life-threatening disease. You always want the people there to also care for you. So research, for example, shows that women spend more time per patient than men on average. And I think it's probably because most more women have high estrogen neurosignatures than men. And so they tend to care more personally about the patient. And that's a good thing because we know that when somebody cares for you, you heal faster, you get better rates of um, of curing people. So it's not just about the money. It's also about the people in a hospital. So I think that's a simple 
example that shows why it's important to balance it out. Of course, you need to make sure that your hospital is profitable or it will go into bankruptcy, but you also need to make sure that people care for the patients and really want their best. Now, it's interesting you talk about the hospital because I remember Dan Siegel left medicine because of that. Like he was feeling empathetic. You, You know, his brain probably is not the high testosterone that was needed. He was empathetic towards a patient. He got in trouble for tearing up and he's like, this isn't for me. And look where he is now. So it's just, it's, it's really interesting as we get to know our own neural signatures. And I definitely saw it in the corporate world, you know, when I was there and I didn't fit in and I was always trying to see, well, how can I move up? And I couldn't move up. I just didn't fit with my, you know, my neural signature. It wasn't what they wanted. And I was told, you know, you should go do, you should go maybe run a a learning center. They were always trying to push me to different things that I'm like, I don't want to do that. That's not what I want to do. And so I was thinking about, you know, all the people like, what about women in sports or female actors, um, you know, or the, like the FBI agent, how can people who are, you know, with these neural signatures move into positions of leadership and, and make it work? Well, um, I think you either need to be very persistent and, you know, um, show a track record that your ideas are working, like in that case. But I think more importantly, you will only move up if the people around you see the value in what you provide. And so what needs to be changed is I think that people understand different neurosignatures and see the value in it, not just to be nice and caring and inclusive, but because it brings results in terms of better results. Because for example, with your FBI agent example, well, they caught the criminal, right? So you sometimes, we need those different neurosignatures in the workplace. So I think the first step would be for leaders to have that understanding and to see when you hire people, when you promote people, to not have this very narrow-minded checklist of how people are supposed to be like. Um, that, for example, I think we should hire and promote people according to their strength. And what this means is not that we should ignore weaknesses, but for example, when I was working in consulting, I always said, I want to bring in the neuroscience and I want to focus on people. And they completely ignored that. And instead I had to work on Excel sheets and due diligences. And I think that wasn't the smartest move in a sense. So it would have been much better to put me in a position where I could have brought in mindsets from neuroscience. And people have such a narrow-minded understanding of they check your skill levels against some kind of competency sheets. And what we know is that people don't really, aren't able to really check off 64 different trades. They get an idea about you and then they fill in the sheet somehow to make it match. But they forget to see the whole person and what this person could could do. Definitely. And when I was reading it, it came across a term that you called as lateral thinking. And I remember someone in management talking about my way of thinking, and I never really understood it because, you know, being in the field, I had to know who I was going to see. But then there were all these unknowns around it that you had to build around. So I had to be open for not just 
being a linear, linear worker, I couldn't just go from person to person. That just never happened. You get a flat tire on the way and you have to figure things out. So I was just thinking, can you explain this lateral thinking and how creative ideas come in so that a linear person could maybe understand it better? Yeah. So in my book, I outlined two ways of thinking, linear thinking versus lateral thinking. Most of the corporate world builds on linear thinking. So, you know, high dopamine, testosterone, your signatures, they love that structure. And it's a great one. Executive summary, three points to support your, your, your statement. Boom, right? Short to the point, succinct. Boom, you've got it. Go from A to B, straight line. Boom. But we miss, I mean, that works well for maybe 80% of the problems that might be the most efficient, most productive, best approach. But there are situations that require a hot insight and where you can be more innovative. Wasn't it that, no, I'm odd on thin eyes, but wasn't there that saying that, um, who was this, this car producer, the famous car producer, get me here, the historical John Ford. Yeah, Henry Ford. I'm going to Henry Ford. Exactly. I was thinking like, what's his name? Didn't he say like, if they had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Yeah, yeah. And so exactly. So that's what I'm going to come up. And so people often don't see what's beyond their immediate experience. And they stay within that framework. And this way you can never have true advancement in science or anywhere, because you stay in that narrow framework where A plus B, you know, leads to C or something like that. And sometimes we need to have aha moments, these Eureka moments. And that's where high estrogen people come in because they often have more lateral thinking and they will suggest something completely out of the box that everybody first thinks is crazy. And then they realize later on that it was the solution. A bit like with your FBI agent. And I have an example for me in the book where I we had a, a case where we wanted to understand how patients were thinking, why they didn't like a certain medicine. And my colleagues just said, just give them a survey to see what they want or why they don't like this. They won't tell you because research shows that people don't know why they're doing something. They will put something, they will fill out your survey to make you happy and to do their duty. But the real reasons may be subconscious, the real reasons may be emotional. So if you want to get this from people, you need to, you know, do something different. So I suggested that we let them play some kind of a theater play. And they thought it was like, how can we have them play theater? We're in a business setting, we're serious. But in the end, I convinced them. And it turned out that people didn't like the medicine because it had so little side effects. Nobody would have come up with that idea. Nobody puts that in a survey. Oh, I hate this medicine because I don't get side effects. Hello. Like this wouldn't ha even have been on the survey, if you know what. So we need those out-of-the-box thinkers. And that's why we need linear thinking and lateral thinking in the business world. So this is something, Frederica, I've been trying to figure out. And I've asked this question to so many different um, people that I've had on the podcast, Harvard researchers, where did these flashes of insight come from? Like I'm told we can't prove this, Andrea. Science can't prove it, but I'm on a mission. Can't we figure out how do you get this flash of something in your head and you just know the answer? Do, do you have an idea of where it comes from? Yeah, I do have an idea. I think it can be measured and it has been measured in the brain scanner. 
So what usually happens is you first get alpha waves in your right hemisphere. So that's when your brain turns inwards. You get this alpha effect of a slow wave, alpha waves in your brain. And then you suddenly get these gamma oscillations at the moment of insight. These are very high frequency brain waves. And that's the gamma inside effect. And what usually, what we know is, for example, that it occurs more frequently when we're in a good mood. It occurs more frequently when you have silence and solitude. So that's why people have these aha moments when they take a shower or when they drive their car, because they're relatively happy and nobody disturbs them. And that's when your brain turns inward. And then brain areas that usually don't connect with each other connect during this gamma inside effect. So it can be measured and it has been measured. And for example, Buddhist monks have more of them. They have more control, let's say, over their brains. And they solve more insight problems. So it's even something that can be trained. And I don't think it's as miraculous. I mean, of course, there's a lot about the brain we don't know, but it has been shown and it has been measured. And I think you could even, you know, set people up for having more aha inside in the business world. That's why I have a chapter on silence and solitude, because I think it's underrated. We have these busy open space offices. We always force people to work in teams from starting at kindergarten. You never get a moment to yourselves. People sit in those cubicles. You have meetings, meeting, 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 meeting all day long. People never get a moment just with themselves. But our brains get their best ideas when we're just alone. So for the moment, for example, I'm thinking about what could my next book be like? And I've asked a couple of my you know, business partners to brainstorm together, but I've told each and one of them, first we brainstorm alone. And then we brainstorm together because I know, scientifically speaking, we'll have more and better ideas if we first think about this by ourselves. This is so helpful and interesting. So moving on to the idea of the neurosignature, which is, I feel like it's the whole premise of, of this book. Like we've got to understand each our neurosignatures and, and each other's. Um, to have the happiness in the workplace. And that's why I wanted to do a Brain Fact Friday. I actually just took a stab at it myself to see, you know, well, really think about it, Andrea, what neurosignature are you? And I thought I was dopamine at first. And, and I asked my husband, what, what am I? If you look at these, and he agreed. But then I was reading your book, and then I saw that you talked about the estrogen side, um, the estrogen oxytocin neurosignature. And I thought, well, that I'm, I'm that as well. So, and then I saw in your foreword, um, Scott Kaufman, was it? Is Scott Barry mm -hmm. Kaufman? He mentioned that neurosignatures are fluid. So, just how would you explain what neurosignature we are so that I'm sure I've got it right? Well, our brains are influenced by certain brain systems. So, there's a dopamine system, the serotonin system, testosterone, and estrogen. And even before you're born, your brain is shaped by certain hormones and neurotransmitters that become more dominant in your brain, so to say. I would say it's 50% nature, 50% nurture. I mean, 
this can vary. Sometimes it's more genetic, sometimes it's more environmental. So this is a bit fluid. You can't tell exactly for certain conditions, for certain traits, there are certain percentages, how much this is influenced by genetics. And the interesting thing is we all have all four of them. So you could theoretically even be high on all four of them. You could be both dopamine and serotonin, estrogen and testosterone. Then you just have a very, let's say, balanced personality. But for most of us, some of these systems are more dominant than others. And they shape your personality. They influence your personal optimal stress point. They influence what kind of work environment you need to do your best thinking. They influence your food preferences. They influence your goals in life. And so it's a bit uh, the biological basis to your personality. And of course, everyone is different, but we can, by looking at those four ingredients, those four brain systems, we can say that the mix of it is your neurosignature and Helen Fisher um, she has actually measured that in the brain scanner and she was able to see that her Helen Fisher temperance assessment, assessment or the Helen Fisher, yeah, I think that's what it's called, the Fisher temperance, well, she knows exactly about her personality test, actually correlated with certain activity in certain brain areas. And so they're important because very often people think that everyone is like them, like themselves. Every parent knows that, you know, you think your kids should behave like you and then they turn out having completely different preferences or different strengths and different way of looking at the world. And it's good to understand your neurosignature because then you can find a workplace that fits you. I always tell people, don't change yourself, change the workplace. Try to find a place where you can just be yourself and be fine with how you are and be high performing the way you are, where you don't have to change who you are to fit in. And these newer signatures also influence our personal optimal stress point. And that is, I think, also a key concept from my book, because I'm saying people reach their best performance at different stress levels. So some people require a lot of stress. These are the sensation seekers. And some people require less stress to reach their peak performance. These are what I call the deep thinkers. And so rather than imposing one way of working on everyone, we should give people the flexibility to work when they want, where they want, how they want, as long as they deliver in the end. Well, I, I, when I got to the testosterone neural signature, and I, I don't want to name call, but I saw the um, direct associated with the quality of being direct. And, and I could put another word in there, but I'm not going to, but I'm sure um, you know what I mean. But people yeah. with this tend to be more direct and we could call it different things. And I actually said this to my husband yesterday. I brought up your neural signature. I'm like, you're being direct in another way right now. And <clears throat> so we we see that people who are in management roles tend to be this way. But you said in your book that only one third of women with a high testosterone brain don't make it to these corporate levels. Why do you think this is the case? If they match these high levels, why do you think they're not getting into these um, management positions if they fit? That's interesting, you know, because one third of women, according to, you know, this data set I received, 
have a high testosterone brain. So they fit exactly, let's say, the ideal of a dominant, powerful leader. And yet we don't have 30% female leaders in corporations. So there's a gap there. And I think that must be due to bias, for example, you know, bias and also self-selection. Maybe in some cases, the women might not have the personal support at home that the men have. They have those stay-at-home wife who takes care of the kids and the high testosterone women might not always have a husband who stays at home and takes care of the kids. So, of course, there's bias. So in my book, I'm saying some of the gender differences we see may just be due to neurosignatures and others are probably due to bias and also self-selection and circumstances. So it's... um. It's bizarre. And then, of course, we also know that when women show these qualities, it's not considered as great as when a man showed these qualities. So when a man is direct and um, powerful and ambitious, everybody admires that. But when a woman showed that showed that behavior, everybody says she's just, you know, bossy or something more aggressive. So there's there is bias in the business world. So my signatures don't expect playing the, the entire gender gap. And I think there's also a lack of support for families overall. And of course, women carry most of that burden. And that explains a lot as well. Definitely. I think companies should pay more attention to be family friendly for both men and women. Because one thing I advocate in my book to close that gender gap is that part-time should not be for women. Everybody should work part-time. That would change the landscape completely because if everybody finishes up at, let's say, three o'clock, both men and women can pick up the kids. Right. So I, I advocate that we all work less rather than just the women working less because then you would have more of a chance to to really share um, share the taking care of the kids and all of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I liked that when you compared how things are in Europe. And I've got a really close friend who's always saying, you know, it's illegal in England to send an email on a Sunday because I was explaining what my weekend looked like. And she's like, we can't do that over here. And it's just so different. But I, I really liked how you brought in the example of the um the shark tank surfboard guy that reduced the hours. And, and then he tied the reduction of the hours to productivity. So that you've got to bring in, you know, tie the money to it somehow. It's not just, we're going to work less, like we're going to work less if you can produce more, right. There's got to be the outcome tied to it. Yeah. And I love my interview with Stephen R. Still from, I think, Tawa, paddle boards and I think then also tower electric bikes they have expanded and it was such a refreshing interview because I had read his book the five-hour workday and I thought it was fabulous and when I interviewed him he said like oh we changed that people became entitled and I was like wow that's interesting so what he then changed is it's not always five hour for everyone only if they're growing and doing well, they get the five hour week during the summer. And so he is always tying it to business results, actually. So he's not a fluffy guy. And I love that about his approach because he's a very family friendly, people friendly approach. But at the same time, he's looking at the numbers and he's making tough decisions. And 
I found it so refreshing when I asked him about his book and he said, yeah, but then when I introduced all these things, people became complacent. They became entitled when they sometimes had to work longer because there was just something going that were like, oh, I'm not going to lift a finger. So we have to be careful. The moment we introduce people-friendly measures, they're going to have a positive impact, but then people get used to it. And there's always a fine line between, you know, appreciating these positive things and becoming entitled and complacent. So that's what I found so refreshing when I interviewed him for the book, because that was that rare honesty of saying, well, actually, it didn't always work out. After a while, they, it backfired a bit. So I thought that was, I, I, I had a lot of fun in that interview. <laughs> See, yeah, the real world translation, because when I was reading that, I thought about how that worked when I was at my my second favorite job at Pearson. It was the first one was, um, you know, the team really worked well. And then we went to these new offices. And when everyone hit their goals, those things were implied, like you could show up late, you didn't have to be at your desk at a certain time, once you'd hit your number, the pressure was off of you. And it was a people friendly environment. And people just kind of knew if you hadn't hit your number, you had to be at your desk. It it was all unwritten. There was nowhere, no one in there telling us these things, but it was like perform and then you can own the, the rest of your year and do what, do as you like, still keep working. But it, it just made everyone happier to have these, these in place. So I liked seeing the comparison of it. Yeah, and I think we need both. What I'm painting in my book is not like this fluffy world where everybody's just meditating all day and taking naps and uh, we're all just like hugging each other at the workplace. I think we need to, of course, have productivity in mind. And so what I find so beautiful about the brain is that things, the things that make us productive are also the very things that lead to us being well. So it's actually a combination of performance and well-being. I find that's the beauty of it. And when you bring in the different neurosignatures, everybody performs in their way of performing best according to their optimal stress levels. And you don't have to measure every individual's optimal stress point or neurosignature in order to have a brain-friendly workplace. If you just give people autonomy and options so that they can decide how they want to work as long as they meet the targets, they are going to shape their workday so that it fits their neurosignature. I even have, you know, interviewed people from Patagonia and, you know, they go surfing when the waves are great and they have all these brain-friendly measures, but they've also had a stellar performance. So I think when you do this right, you manage to get both excellent performance and increased well-being and that's what I like about it it's not just like be nice to people to be nice it's be nice and they'll perform better as well so it's it's outcomes based and when I was when I was even yeah. looking at like the title of your book brain-friendly workplace and and then what's the second part it's how to make people stay and not leave. it's um, why talented people quit and how to get them to stay yeah um because what I'm saying is that the high estrogen, high serotonin people are leaving. They're the quiet quitters. They're the people who say, forget about it. I'm I'm leaving my career. There's alarming statistics that many women are leaving the workplace or don't want to be promoted to leadership positions or 
start their own business instead. I mean, just look at you, just look at me. What have we done? We have quit and we created our own brain-friendly companies. And this is happening all over the world and companies are losing. So I think, why is it only possible to have a brain-friendly workplace when you're a freelancer? Shouldn't it be something that everybody could have? True. And then people would stay. Right. Right. I think about that a lot. Absolutely. And and then that's what kind of brought me to watching your presentation, your fun, fear and focus presentation so many times, because, you know, I always wondered what what is it about how I can perform in this office and do things? It's because I figured out I need exercise in my day. So I plugged that in. And I had that in one corporate environment. We would all pile into someone's car and we'd go to the gym midday and we were high producing. But that didn't translate into all the corporate positions I've had. So it's it's just figuring out what makes you tick in your environment. And like you said, change the workplace, not the person, because then you can make your people happy, not just by training them, make them happy in the workplace. Yeah. And I think it's more systemic change because most companies, they do like a one day workshop or, you know, some kind of training, but then everybody goes back to business as usual. And I think when we set up the workplace to be truly brain friendly, that brings out the best in people. So people perform better. You know, with fun, fear, and focus, you can be up to five times more productive. When people have the right oxytocin levels, they trust each other and they help each other and they collaborate. We know that collaborative teams are way more productive. When people get sports, sleep, snacks, and sunlight, they reach neural balance. So your body and your brain are aligned. And so when your body is well, your brain can do better thinking. And so I was thinking, how can I give people a blueprint both organizations, so it leads you through the steps what you need to change so that different neurosignatures can thrive so you get more thought diversity and higher productivity and keep your talent, the, the, the top people. But then also for people like you and me, we can just read it and use it, apply it to our own way of working because I wanted it to be so that it's packed with individual tips so that even if your company is not brain-friendly, you can create your own little space of brain-friendly working. So you can create your own brain-friendly workplace. I wanted it to be empowering, not for people to read like, I just wish my boss was like this. It's like, that's not helpful. You need to know what you can do to make it better. Right. And it just brought so much. um, It opened my eyes to why I was happy in certain places And, you know, even thinking about that curve you did. So in the beginning of the curve was like routine workers um, that would do the same things over and over again. And then it went up to show you showed peak performance and then you had your so so under arousal and over arousal. And this image kept coming into my head because my husband can burn the candle at both ends. Right. He's always working, always working. And I'm thinking you're going to burn out and I'm getting all paranoid. But some people thrive and work best under that those circumstances. Exactly. And that's why it's so important also to have that respect. So he should respect that you may need more rest and you can respect that he always needs to be on the go and that 
I think it's so important to understand that neurosignatures are not linked to intelligence or performance. It's just you need different ways of working to perform at your best. And most companies think that people like your husband are the high performers. You know, they can, they're highly stress resistant, very active, energetic. This is the fabric of most leaders. But people who maybe say, you know, I don't want to work as much. I don't want to be every evening at a dinner. I don't want to spend all my weekends preparing PowerPoint presentations. I don't want to be available 24-7. We think they are not great leaders or not motivated or not high performing. And that is a mistake because they may bring in the creativity and the lateral thinking and the empathy that makes everyone work better. And, uh, you know, the, today's workplace has a lot of issues. There are many people with mental health problems. There is a lot of stress, a lot of burnout, a lot of boredom too. And so if we only allow people to, you know, get fun, free and focus right and to hit that sweet spot for their peak performance, everybody could work at their peak, which means different ways of working for everyone rather than this first at your desk, last to leave kind of approach. Yeah, the, the definitely, I know over time that's not sustainable. Like these people cannot perform yeah. at this level. It's like there our bodies are going to break down. That's why I'm focused on, you know, all these health prevention tips that I'm always trying to, Hey, you know, try and let's, let's go on, on a hike. And I know you take your husband exercising too. It's like trying to, um, you know, uh, w- w- prevent things from happening over time because it's, yeah. And I always see you on Twitter on some hikes on some mountain and I smile. Um, yeah, now I, I don't know what I you're can't. doing there. <laughs> there. Yeah, there's no way I could sit at my desk and and understand this. I would sit here and I'd be fidgety. So it's almost like how I figured out my my brain signature works. It, it's I'm not inclined to study hard stuff without these neurochemicals that fly in once I've done the mountain. But but over time my won't be able to take that either. It's like, I, I was explaining that to someone, that's what I need, but are there other ways? Cause I can't be 80 and running up a mountain and then still studying this stuff. Eventually your body starts to break down, right? Is Well, I disagree there. I think you should be 80 and still be doing this. Okay. And I think it would be great for everyone. We need movement. I mean, the best thing for your brain is physical exercise for everyone. I mean, you're smart, so you figured it out for yourself, but everybody's brain gets more oxygen, more blood circulation, more brain-derived neurotrophic factor, dopamine, you reduce stress levels. I mean, exercise, it was like a recent Stanford study, walking boosts creativity by 60%. Look at all the pharmaceuticals out there. If there was a drug that, you know, if there was a product on Amazon that said, if you take this pill, it improves your productivity, your creativity by 60%, Ooh, it would be a bestseller item on Amazon, but walks, well, people don't get it, how much brain and body are connected. And I think for, for dementia, it's a very good prevention factor too. So you should definitely still, I don't think there's a limit to it. There are some 90 years old people who are stronger than some who are 20 years old. I believe that, you know, use it or lose it in a sense. So you should probably work out even more as you get older. No, maybe not more in a sense of straining yourself, but it's certainly not just for the young and 
So my plan is to stay active. We know that dementia can be prevented by dancing. That dancing has been twice as effective in preventing dementia as reading. People think they need to stay cognitively fit, but what keeps your brain fit is physical exercise first and foremost. Well, I've got to go to chapter four of your book because I'm reading it and I'm thinking, I, I went back in my head to when I knew you were going up on stage for a big talk and you're sending me messages on LinkedIn to prepare for our first interview. And I'm thinking, who does that? She's about to go on stage and she's answering me. But then when I read the book, chapter four, you talk about how your technical stuff started to fail. And, and I had to put a clip of our, our chat because it, re it really happened. This was you about to do your first TED Talk and you're sending me a message. And I'm like, go, it's okay. My tech stuff fails all the time. The message will come through. So how did your neural signature help you in this situation? And why were you texting me when you were about to go on stage? Well, uh, it's so funny that, so, you know, you, I, to present, I use my iPad and oh, yeah. to, to make drawings like that. Oh, cool. And so I, I had told the organizers that I need my iPad and I had sent them my tech sheet and I had explained it to them and I had calls with them to make sure they get it because I don't have this standard PowerPoint setup. I can do PowerPoint, but I wanted to do something else. I wanted to do these live scribbles and yeah. And they were like, yeah, we got it. You know, it's easy. Yeah, sure. I was like, okay, great. I showed up on the day and nothing is working. Nothing. Like the tech team just wasn't, you know, you know that the TED organizers, they had just hired tech people in there. So I don't want to blame my organizers, but the, the tech people there, they really didn't know what they were doing. And so when I was texting you, what happened was that nothing was working. Oh, no. And the TED organizing team, they said, oh, you just leave your iPad with us. We fix it, fix it. You go backstage and relax. And we figured out when you come on stage, everything is going to be work working. <laughs> and so I was like a bit like going crazy there at backstage. Yeah. So I thought, okay, I have to do something. Why don't I get some work done? And I was just like, Ooh, you know. Mm. getting stuff done because waiting is not my preferred activity oh, I like waiting either and then I know yeah and I, it was so funny when you sent me the screenshot of our text like when I walked on stage and I wanted to start making my drawings nothing worked and I wasn't prepared for this because they had told me we got it working everything's perfect so they told me we fixed it relax like all is good and I didn't want to be paranoid, so I didn't say I go and check it myself again. They were like, oh, everything is good. We handle it for you. <laughs> I should have been paranoid and said, show it to me. Right. Um, that's what I now always do. But uh, I didn't want to be that like bossy, bitchy person. So I was like, okay, they said they fixed it. It's not too complicated if you face it. And so I walked on stage, started my story, went over to my iPad. Nothing worked. I was just like, this can't be true. Like, what's, you know, for a moment, my mind just went blank. And then it was just like, boom, I had all these ideas. I was like jotting, you know, I had made all these spontaneous jokes, like suddenly had all this energy. And I think it was because with TED Talks, you are forced to really rehearse and script those. And that bores me a little bit, like to a certain degree, of course, 
you know, practicing something is the, the road to greatness. So I'm not criticizing the TED approach, but to a certain degree, it also, I wasn't as interested in my own presentation anymore because when you know it inside out to the minute, to the second, it might not bore the audience, but I'm bored inside because I'm just saying the words that I had prepared. So when I didn't have my presentation, I was, of course, forced to do something differently. And I loved it. Uh, you know, it was great. And people loved it, too. So afterwards, one of the organizers came to me and said, did you just do this on purpose? Did you fake this failure to show your point that, with, you know, we need a little bit of fear to perform at our best? Because I talked about fun, fear and focus and how we need um, a little bit of being over challenged to perform our best work. And so it was an interesting experience. I have become much more uh, paranoid in a sense when I work with tech teams to really check what they are doing. And anyhow, so I mostly work virtually. So I control my own tech and, you know, I can push my own buttons and I do what I want to do and I have full control and it works. But I didn't have that pleasure there, but it turned out for the best. And it was a very good life demonstration of the fact that we do our best work when we're slightly over-challenged. And so in order to grow, we need to grow our skill levels, grow the challenge, skill, challenge. We should never stay at that situation where it's comfortable and where you just your skill matches your skill, uh, the, the challenge matches your skill exactly. So it was a wild moment. I was texting you because I was like, I had to wait hours backstage. It was so oh, boring. Oh. I love that story. When I got there, I was like, was it really her TEDx or was it something else? I'm like, wow, that's, that's a crazy story, Frederike. So, yeah. so and then, and then when I got on moving on, your book is going to be something that I'm going to be reading for some time. It's not just something that I'm going to read and then put away. It's going to be something I'm definitely going to come back to keep reading and I love seeing some of the researchers that I admire so much, like Dr. Andrew Huberman from Stanford, and then Matthew Walker, the sleep diplomat. But I love seeing your interview with John Medina the most, because I remember when I got the email saying, you know, how, how do I reach John Medina? And then I was so happy to see that you reached him. And then I, when I was reading his interview with you, I forgot how funny he could be like on such a serious topic. So can you explain maybe something that he talked about in his interview on the power problem and how people in leadership positions can mitigate this problem? Yeah. So first of all, I was so grateful because my book is building on the shoulders of giants. Like, I mean, the people you mentioned, these are icons, you know, these are people who have like done such groundbreaking research and done so much for this field of, of neuroscience and this transfer to the real world. So whenever I can, I bring in, you know, expertise from others. Um, and so I had this idea of having every chapter end with an interview with somebody who has done something interesting. So it's not just me talking. There are other people who bring in something completely unexpected. And so John Medina, yes, and thank you for making the connection. He, yeah, he was so funny but also so smart in such a relaxed way. You know, he's not like full of himself and like bragging. He was like, so blah, 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 you know. And he had this fun, well, not really funny, but the way he told it to me, when people get into power positions, their brains change. 
So what happens when you when you become powerful? You, you know, he had like five factors and I, you know, they are in my book of what happens to people when they become powerful. And one of them was that the rules don't apply to you anymore. They may apply to the people, but you, superior, don't need to adhere to any rules anymore. And I think that's so fitting. I, I can think of a couple of politicians who are like making rules for the people, but they themselves don't have to follow them. And so I think that happens all the time. And so it explains a lot. And he also said that when people become powerful, they tend to overestimate their own mate value. I would suspect that this is more true for men than women, though. And they tend to over-sexualize all the attention they become. So he said it's important to explain this to executives or to powerful people, especially men, because as they become powerful, they just think they are hot. And every attention, every compliment they get, every smile they get from a woman, they just think, oh, she wants to sleep with me. And so in order, and that's where, you know, you can just think of some famous presidents or, you know, there are many situations I think we can all think of where people have overstepped and harassed people or had affairs or, you know, in the workplace. And I think this happens because they're so full of power and they just think I'm hot and every single, and, and they don't think the rules apply to them anymore. So a lot of the workplace bullying and harassment and all of that happens because people get intoxicated by power. And I think he explained it so well. And I found it very interesting because he said that it's important to tell people about this so that when it happens, they understand it's just a normal mechanism of my brain. I have not suddenly become super hot. I just tend to over-sexualize because power is intoxicating. And then I suddenly think I can do anything I want whenever I want it. Mm -hmm. And so I think this would prevent probably a lot of workplace harassment if people had more information about this. this, the impact power will have on your brain. And I think it's dangerous because the people who are in power are the ones whose brain is, you know, becoming like this and they don't make the best decision for people. They make whatever boosts their ego or makes them feel better. So I found that very refreshing. It is. And is there a way other than telling people this to help mitigate this? Well, I'm not the expert on that. Um, I would think that I have a hard time believing that the impact is the same for women. At least I don't think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there are more cases of powerful men harassing women than the other way around. And so that's, well, this, I'm getting into a territory here that could be for various reasons. But if we had more women in leadership positions, less of this would happen, I'm pretty sure. Even though they may have similar neurosignatures, it might not be as strongly. Though I must say that we, maybe I don't agree with this view either because a lot of powerful women then also, maybe they don't have that sexual behavior as much, but a lot of this hubris and a lot of this, the rules don't apply to me and all of this happens to them as well. So well, there's so much power is intoxicating. Maybe you need to have a more often a turnover of people so that it's not always the same people in power and they don't have 
Because what we also see is that when people stay in power longer, they lose touch with reality. Not all of them, but some of them. So if that time is limited and you afterwards go back to a more normal life, that could be having a grounding impact. But we should ask John about this because I'm really not the expert on like, good question, but he would probably say something more intelligent about this. Oh, this is, it's all so thought provoking when we start thinking with our brain in mind, something that, you know, 12 years ago, nobody was doing. Frederica, is there anything important that I haven't asked you about your book that sticks out at the end here? Not really. I think the thing with you is you'll read the book. You didn't just read it. I feel like you've read, you know, talking to you, it sounds like you read it five times uh, to me. And we've been in touch over the years. So I think, I guess my message is don't change the people, change the workplace. And I want everyone to feel empowered to build their own brain-friendly workplace. So yes, it's a blueprint for organizations. So you need to go through these nine steps uh, to make the workplace more brain-friendly. But it's also something, my goal with this is that you can pick it up and you can shape your own environment. Even if you have an awful boss, long hours, um, afraid of being fired, you know, now with layoffs coming, you should still be able to create your optimal brain-friendly workplace around you. And also it can be applied even to your family, to your kids. So to me, my hope was that it would empower people and lift them up. And of course, I'd love to hear from people. So if there's people who are listening to your podcast who then decide to, you know, get the book and read it, I'd love to hear from them and hear, you know, did it work out? What worked? What didn't? I'm. It's crazy when you work on something for five years and then you want to hear from people who have actually read it, how they applied it. So I'm waiting to get those kind of stories, you know? That's like when I thoroughly did the questions, it meant so much to me because I could have watched you writing this book the whole way. And I remember, you know, all along the way, and I'm thinking, wow, and connecting. And it was important for me because you can really tell when someone's read your book or they're just asking, you know, what's the neural gap? What's the neural signature? You've got to be able to apply this stuff first. And even when I applied it, I thought, you know, have I done it right? And then you've got to go out and use it and then, you know, pull it out when, when, I'm watching my husband being direct, saying, you're behaving this way right now. And um, so just applying it is so important. So that's why it was very important for me to put in the application of it, just to show, uh, because I really do think that you've worked hard over all these years. And I do think it's a powerful work for change in the workplace when I had a happy workplace and I've had one that wasn't so happy. So just to see how can we change that for ourselves and others. I think it's amazing what you've written. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, I can really tell you read it because why when you send me like the you know the overview of what you were planning, I was just like, what is she doing? Like does she ever sleep? I, I was really it meant a lot to me. I was it really put a big smile on my face. 
Well, Frederike, I want to thank you so much for coming back on the podcast for a second time and creating such an engaging and important book that I, I know will help all of us to become happier in the workplace. For people who want to reach you, is the best place your website? Is that for people? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's fredericafabricius.com. So and I would say that's the best place to reach me. And I do have, you know, if you want to... Um, share this so you know here is a direct link to my website for those who are watching this with a QR code but yeah I have a brain-friendly newsletter I have my website where I have a blog I'm also on social media but I would say my website is the go-to place well, I have a difficult name um so it's fredericafabricius.com but I you know luckily there's google correct so when people search and spell it incorrectly it still ends up with me most of the time. <laughs> it's so true because over the over the years, I actually label my notes for you as just FF because I got confused and now I don't make a mistake because I just put like fried, F-R-I-E-D for Frederike. I just think of that and then you won't misspell it, but it doesn't sound the way that it's written, but it, it's true. Yeah. You want to find your YouTube You've got to know how to spell it correctly because I went back many times going, where's that YouTube about the fun, fear, focus, that first one. And it's it's a lower yeah. audio version. And I'm like, I need that one to get the chemicals right. And then I found your Google talk that you did. There's a lot, but you've got to know how to spell your name if you want to find some yeah. of the older stuff. Yeah, exactly. So that's the crazy thing about my name. Nobody can spell it, not even the Germans. And oh. so wherever I go, I have to go and spend time spelling it, which is like the most boring thing in the world. So, yeah. <laughs> but find still, your website. You find find your website. And I'll put all the links to everything I've studied about you in the show notes. So it'll all be there. And I want to thank you so much for your time today, Frederike. Yeah, thanks for having me. You have an amazing podcast. And I've also watched you over the years. So it's it's great to see that passion and that depth to bring to the discussions and the great guests you have and the impact you're having. So yeah, thank you. I'll see you here maybe for my third book sometime. Sounds good. Week. I'll be here. Thank <laughs> you. Yeah. Thank you. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episode. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com. 